If God is able, we are able. Welcome to the One Cause Church podcast with Pastor Eric Holler. Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you today. I see that uh, ah, some of you, do some of you normally go to the early service, but something happened with your clock to showed up at this service? I looked out the early service and said, honey, they didn't get the message. This, these door hangers we have available to you out in the foyer, and, and uh, they're saved to dates for uh, you to pass out to your friends and neighbors and coworkers, whoever, enemies, we, we'll take them all. Um, we're, we're, we're advertising two Sundays, March the 24th and the 31st, the 24th being when we do the Living Lord's Supper production, and uh, it's a powerful production. Uh, I invite you to, to bring somebody, especially someone who you know that doesn't normally come to the church or doesn't have a relationship with God because we're going to give the op- them the opportunity to know him, as we, well, we do every service, but, um, but especially that day. Um, and then on Easter, the following Sunday, we'll be doing three services, and that's when we'll, we're launching our third service, and from that day forward, it'll be 1 o'clock, 9.30, 11, and 1 o'clock to give you three different times. So uh, if you happen to sleep in extra long, you can still come to church. And if you happen to sleep extra long and like to drive far, then you can join us in Dallas for our Sunday service there at 3.30. So uh, we've got a lot of things available to you as far as service times. And then Wednesday nights, we have our our service time here at 7 o'clock. And our youth meet, Thrive Meets, on Thursday nights at 7. So got a lot of things going and uh, very excited. Everybody all right today? Yeah. Good. Yeah. I told Heather, I said, we need to pray. I said, we got three things working against us as far as church attendance today. Stormy weather. Of course, it's not now. Daylight savings time and spring break weekend. <laughs> but you came. Thank God. All right. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to look at a somewhat obscure passage of Scripture, um, that one that can be overlooked pretty easy because... It's a list of names, basically, and um, 57 names, to be exact. I counted them. And this isn't an ordinary list of names, as in some chapters in the, in the Bible and some books in the Bible that basically name the genealogy um, of the different tribes of Israel or people groups. But this is a list of the names of the mighty men of King David, his greatest warriors in his army. And uh, so let's just, let's go ahead and start and let's look into this. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshib, Bathshebeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He, he was called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. I mean, Eleazar can't help but grow up tough when his dad's name is Dodo. One of the three mighty men with David when they defeated the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. 
want you to say these names with me today. Adino, Eliezer, and Shama. Let's try it again. Adino, Eliezer, and Shama. Now, I don't know if you might not have ever heard of these men or if you have, uh, you know, they've been lost in in time in your memory banks, but I want to call their names forward today and, and, and maybe let this be a day from this day forward that you take great remembrance of these men because there's something really extraordinary about their lives. Um, they're at the top of David's list. Their distinction is underlined as, as you read this chapter because as, as you read about these other mighty men that David had, um, you find a comparison to these first three that we just talked about, Adino, Eleazar, and Shammah. Matter of fact, let's look down to verse 18, and we can see that. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300, killed them, 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Who's that? Adino, Eleazar, and Shama. Look at verse 20. Benaiah is the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzil who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. You ought to hear Brandon Marshall preach about that. Verse 21, and he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a stick or a staff. Odds are not in your favor if you have a stick and they've got a spear. <laughs> but he wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. So there's, there's something extraordinary about Adino, Eliezer, and Shammah that stand above and beyond all of the other mighty men. Men. And though these other men are very mighty in valor, they do not compare to the top three. So when I read passages of Scripture like this, I have to ask questions about that. Why? What, what's so special? Why are they the ones at the top of the king's list? And when you're looking for the significance in a passage of Scripture, uh, you need to ask questions. Why does it say it like this? Or has this happened before? What was the response? What, what led up to it? What came after it? And as you ask questions, that's when things begin to crack open and you find out why it's there. Why these guys? There's got to be some common characteristic that place these men at the top of the king's list. When the Bible describes these three mighty men above all the others, it gives these little anecdotes. One of Adino, Eliezer, and Shammah, that, and these, these descriptions give us clues about their special rank. The first one, Adino, killed 800 men in one setting. That says something. Amen. He didn't have an AR-15 or hand grenades or explosives available to him. He had to fight one-on-one, -on -one, taking one Nasty, dirty Philistine after another. So Dino definitely deserves to be in the top three. Then I look at Eliezer, and it's kind of interesting. 
It goes from Adino, who'd killed 800 men, and then it goes to Eleazar, who hasn't killed anyone, at least it doesn't say that he killed anyone, only that his hand stuck to his sword. So Eleazar gets the medal for being tired, I guess. Then Shammah, it said, was in a field of lentils, which is equivalent to a patch of beans. So he defends this patch of beans and gets his name at the top of the list. And in these short descriptions of these three mighty men, I find that there is a thread that holds all them together. And it's a quality that all of you in here in this room have today. And that maybe one time or another in your life, you were ashamed of it, and that is the quality called stubbornness. Adino is a picture of stubbornness despite overwhelming odds. Eliezer is a picture of stubbornness despite overwhelming fatigue. And Shama is a picture of stubbornness despite a very humble assignment. Everyone in this room, you're all stubborn in one way or another. Believers are stubborn people. You have to be stubborn. Many times you'll find your greatest opposition is found amongst other believers. Isn't it interesting that God calls us all to assemble ourselves together? All you stubborn people, come under one roof. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> And if you're not careful, your stubbornness will work against you. you. It's easy to find faults with others. Comparisons take place in a room full of stubborn people. You can quickly irritate one another. Bumping up against each other. Now, I'm saying that not because that happens in this church. But I have friends who are pastors, and they tell me it goes on in their churches. I know none of you, none of you do that. But the Christians are too often unified in their willingness to disagree and to argue. You know, when people are gathered together and they begin to get each other's stories and learn about one another... We have this temptation to play Holy Ghost for them. What you should or shouldn't watch on TV. Right? Uh How you ought to raise your kids. You should whip them. I'll tell you that for sure. (laughs) You need to whip your children. That will drive foolishness right out of them. What style of music is right, right? I mean, that's, that's been the argument through the ages in the church. Right? I can remember when I was a teenager, rock and roll was like, there's no such thing as Christian rock. It's all the devil's music. Right? I'm like, yeah, but that country stuff that you're listening to, that's about as dirty stuff as there is out there, man. Talking about cheating on their wife and being drunk every night and, you know, give me a break. Some of my favorite lyrics ever in a song where God gave rock and roll to you. Amen. <laughs> we find there's disagreements. 
There's disagreements. Who should be louder in the monitor mix? I was a worship leader for many years. That was a constant, constant, constant <laughs> place of contention. <laughs> Stubbornness needs to be somewhat modified then. I am I love the Denver Broncos. Oh yes. <laughs> it's my favorite football team and I've liked, loved them since I was in the 8th grade. Amen. And I love to stand up here with a microphone saying that to my friend Jason Voss who is a San Diego Chargers fan because they are our rivals and we hate the Chargers. But we won't get into that right now. But I just want to say that at times, being a Denver Bronco fan in cowboy country can be very difficult. And, I, and you have to have a certain stubbornness to be able to continue in your endeavor to root for the team that does not live in the area where you are. And <clears throat> so for many years, I've worn Broncos hats and shirts and all those things and rooted for my team. And the actual first year that I fell in love with them was John, just happened to be John Elway's rookie year. And he brought that team to greatness and won back-to-back -back Super Bowls and it was just great. But then I had the opportunity, thanks to my friend Brandon Marshall and his wife Sarah, they took Heather and I on a trip to Colorado a few years ago. We went snow skiing, had a great time. And I told in an earlier service, if you ever get the opportunity to watch Brandon Marshall ski, you should take that opportunity. <laughs> it's entertaining. But we ended up, at the end of the trip, being at Mile High Stadium watching the Denver Broncos play football. And it was one of the highlight moments of my life. I mean, it was a dream come true. I'd always wanted to be there and see the blue and orange play. And it was awesome because it wasn't, I, I'd, I didn't have to have any defenses about it when I'm there in Denver. We pulled up to this parking lot, and I mean, there's blue and orange all over the place, tailgate parties, and everybody's Broncos, Broncos. And I thought, oh, this is what I've been living for. I'm home. <laughs> <sighs> they actually do exist. There is a place where Bronco fans are the majority. <laughs> we went inside Mile High Stadium, and as we're walking in at the very crest of that stadium is a white horse statue reared up. And all of its majesty. <laughs> I got inside and I'm just taking it all in and there's ring of honor there and I see the names of the greats who have played for the Denver Broncos, John Elway being one of them, Terrell Davis, Steve Atwater, Carl Mecklenburg. I know these names mean nothing to you. <laughs> just give me a moment to bask. It was wonderful. The Broncos got beat badly by this, whoever they are, Kansas City, whatever's. And but I didn't care. We were there. I was living in a, a moment. But then it was back to reality, back to Dallas Cowboy country. I love the, I love the Cowboys, too. I'm not, I'm not opposed to them. They're just not my favorite. But we got back here, and it was... Back to being stubborn. But I had, I had, <clears throat> my stubbornness grew because I had been there. I had seen them in their glory. I had seen the, the team I've been rooting for live and in person. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, 
When you see the beauty of the body of Christ for what it really is, that Christ died for his church, that it is Jesus who said, I will build my church, then your stubbornness will not be necessarily towards the people of God, but for the people of God. Brandon even kind of got into the spirit of being there. He even bought him a stocking cap with a Bronco on it. However, after the game was over, he took it off his head and said, this is useless to me now. My hypocrisy only can go so far. <laughs> but I appreciated him taking in the moment with me. <laughs> Stubbornness. So we have to, as believers, modify it. Sanctify it. Sanctified stubbornness. Sanctified means to be separate from profane things and dedicated to God. So you become then stubborn for God. A lot of people comprehend the stubborn part more than they do the sanctified part. But that's where all works in progress. But it needs to be a perceptive, perceptive stubbornness too. The difficulty can be what to be stubborn about. Stubbornness is not just blind defense of things as they are. But a perceptive stubbornness. Many years ago, I was on staff at a church, and there was a couple in our church who were, who were givers all the time. I mean, they were just faithful to give and were a great financial support for the church. Well, they came into very difficult times, so difficult that they... they uh, I had to rely on food stamps for a while. And, but the wife of the husband came into our offices one day, the church offices, with arms full of groceries. And my pastor at the time said, what, what's this for? And she said, this is my tithe. He said, what? She said, I cannot give the money because of where we're at, but I can give you 10% of what I can do. And uh, I, we were just humbled by this this heart who was just going to give anyway. Even in their poverty, even in their lack, even in their struggle, she was just stubborn in this stance to give. And I'm happy to tell you today that she did not stay in that state of lack. But I mean, in just a matter of months, as a matter of fact, it was less than a year that they got back on their feet better than ever before and actually became the biggest contributors to that church. By the time I left, they were still giving the biggest offerings. Praise God. Praise God. The stubbornness to do it anyways. The, the right, yeah. that she had this perspective that God is with us. This is an avenue where I can partner with God and allow his super to connect to my natural and become supernatural. Hallelujah. Yeah. But it has to be the right kind of stubbornness. Otherwise, it, it works against us. And I, I'm not here today at all to, to condemn anyone for being stubborn. I'm actually here to con commend you for it and to tell you and to assure you that God can use it for his purposes, for his glory, just as he has in the scriptures. Let's look for a moment at Adino. Adino faces overwhelming odds. It's 800 men against one. And he just won't give up. How can this happen? How does, eight, how does one man take 800 men? Well, Israel is 
got these ravines, these very narrow ravines in it. And the chances are very good that Adina was in a place like this where the, these ravines come down to a place where the, the, that only one person can walk, actually. And they've got very steep sides. And, um, and even you can see where rocks have come together, large rocks, where only one man can get through to pass on, continuing through the ravine. And so there's a good chance that he found himself in a place like this against the Philistines and just stood there between those two rocks, stationed himself there to not allow anyone to come. And don't you know the Philistines, as they're marching through this narrow ravine, that they, you know, they see him? And he says, you shall not pass. <laughs> Only you people who have seen Lord of the Rings understand that. <laughs> but he, and they laughed him off. It's 800 to 1, dude. I'm warning you, if any of you come here, I'm going to kill you. You're not coming through here. And so they receive order from the commanding officer, you know, the corporal to the sergeant to the little soldier to take him out. And so he charges Adino and Adino kills him. One Philistine down. So the next one comes at him. Two Philistines down. And the next, and the next. What's interesting is I'm not a mathematician, but statistics are not favorable toward Adino in this event. If they are of equal strength and of equal skill, which is, you know, assuming a lot, but just for statistics sake, let's say they were, then Adino has one out of two, uh, one and two chance to win this deal. But to win that one, that first battle, and then to win the second one, his chances go from one out of two to one out of four. And the third, one out of eight. One out of 16. One out of 32. You do that 800 times, and the figures are astronomical. Vegas won't give you any odds on that, as a matter of fact. There's no chance. Adino, you can't win this. You can't win this fight. You just need to give up. It's not possible. However, Adino did it. But Adino is stubborn despite overwhelming odds. And that will put you at the top of the king's list. Have you ever felt that things were badly against you? That you were that you are maybe facing overwhelming odds. There's no way that you'll come out on top. There's no way that you can get that project done. There's no way with this wall of opposition or cynicism or indifference that you can actually win this deal, but you're stubborn against overwhelming odds. I'm continually amazed at God's people that will just believe him and declare his promises and be stubborn about those things until they see the result of those things. Amen. When everything in the natural says, it ain't going to happen. When the circumstances don't line up, when the, when the stars are not aligning favorable, it doesn't matter. They find themselves stuck on this one thing, that God is faithful. Yes. God's word is true. Yes. Then there's Eliezer. This guy's enemy is found within himself. And that is his own physical limitations 
and his own fatigue. He fights and he fights and he fights and he swings his sword so long and so hard that his hand is literally cramped around the handle of the sword. And at the end of the day, the brain says to the hand, let go. And the hand says back to the brain, I forgot how. My father-in-law is a man that works hard. Well, let me rephrase that. He's a man that works me hard. He puts me to work. I'm his gopher, have been for many years. His two sons, one is a chiropractor and one is an anesthesiologist. So they don't have time for that kind of stuff and never have. If he wanted his oldest son, Philip, to do anything, Philip would just say, well, how much can I get it done for? I'll just pay for it. I'm not going to do that. I, as a preacher on a preacher's salary, don't have that privilege (laughs) nor those kind of resources. But I do have the ability to work. So um, I have found myself doing projects for him where I found out, I mean, he, even though he's a man that's very meticulous and, and prepares things, he doesn't ever seem to calculate the difficulty of the task because I'm the guy that's doing it. <laughs> this one particular year where it was a very dry year out in West Texas and we were out on our deer lease and he had planted some trees there and wanted to keep them watered and so we had to we had to take water to the trees because there was none falling from heaven. And so he had this big container of water. And so we had, to, we had, to, we had these five-gallon buckets, and we would go fill up the, the buckets with water and then walk them over to the trees that needed the nourishment and needed the water. Well, that was fine as long as we were near the water container, but these trees went on and on. So your trip got longer and longer and longer back and forth until finally get the buckets of water and walk the long walk to that thirsty tree all the way down at the end. And by the time I got there, I can remember this one particular day. It was very hot outside, and I was tired from making all these trips. And I had those buckets in my hands, and when I got there, I went to let go, and my hands wouldn't let go. They were stuck around the handles of the buckets. This is, this is something like what Eliezer had experienced, except he had... He had gone so long and so hard that his hand was stuck, but there was something in him, a stubbornness in him that just would not quit, despite this overwhelming fatigue. And although there are no numbers to tell us how many he killed, he makes the top of the king's list because he just kept stubbornly going, regardless of how tired He was. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem called If, and there's a stanza in there that really speaks to me. It says, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. When you can continue to be stubborn despite overwhelming fatigue, you'll find yourself at the top of the king's list. And we come to Shama. Shama represents stubbornness despite a humble assignment. He has the duty of guarding a patch of beans. And I can see heroism 
I can see a picture of it if he's standing at the palace of the king atop the steps, taking out those who are trying to invade the... You can, that's easy to see it. It's easy to see it if he's standing at the door of the temple, keeping the, keeping the heathen nations from defiling the temple and, and hacking away at the enemies of God. But here, a patch of beans, really? He's giving his life for a patch of beans? I have two words. Run, Shama! And yet, he stands in that field fulfilling his humble assignment, defending beans and killing Philistines. But stubbornness in spite of a humble assignment is what will put you at the top of the king's list. And if you'll understand that, then you'll find yourself appreciating where you are. Because oftentimes we look up and we look at others and we see the advantages that they have and the disadvantages that we have. We look at their place and say, well, they're getting all the big contracts or they have the office with the view or they, they, they have the influence. They're the ones that are up on the stage and here I am in my little patch of beans. But your faithfulness or your stubbornness will put you at the top of the king's list. Besides that, who are you trying to impress anyway? Amen. The scripture says, let everything that you do, whatever you do, do it with your whole heart as to the Lord, not unto men. Knowing it is the Lord who will reward, who will reward you. That's a mouthful. Who will reward you. So, what do we be stubborn about? Because if you've got to sanctify it, if you've got to modify it, then you have to understand that stubbornness in itself can be a double-edged sword. And so you have to figure out what to be stubborn about, and that is to be about the right thing. But only you can really know what to be stubborn about because only you have your call that God has given you, and it has to be about the conviction that is in you of what God has told you to do. And nobody else can fulfill it. I say this all the time, and I believe it more and more. Be who you are and do what you do. Because nobody can do what you do, and nobody can be who you are better than you. Amen. Quickly turn over to 1 Kings chapter 17. Y'all okay out there? Yes. Yeah. 1 Kings 17. We're going to look at, for just a moment, the prophet Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, we come upon his very first sermon, and it's very short. All right? We like short sermons, don't we? No, in other churches they do. But you could sit here all day. I know. It's so rich. It's so good. You could just sit here and, ah, forget food. What Pastor Eric's bringing us is better than food. (laughs) And Elijah the, Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Oh, yeah, let's stand together now, and then the church is dismissed. That was his whole sermon. It was basically this. It ain't going to rain until I say it does. Now, what would have been really great for Elijah at this moment, because it was a word from God, 
the crops started drying up. The ground became parched and a drought began to set in and the people began to suffer from its effects. It would have been great for him as the prophet of God to be able to walk around as all this is unfolding to kind of have, I told you so, so uh, uh, attitude, right? And the people could be looking at him, that's the prophet of God. What he says, have, that's a powerful man. I mean, he, said, he predicted all this was going to happen and it did. But God didn't allow Elijah to do that. Look at, chap, look at verse 3 in the very same chapter, just two. That, well, yeah. Get, what does God say to him? Get away from here and turn eastward and hide. Really? This is the time to go hide? He gives this prophecy and God says, all right, get out of here. So he, he doesn't even get to help his ministry increase. He doesn't get to get his CDs out and books. He has to go hide. Hmm. If you go into hiding, how can you be a famous prophet? Prophets speak to people. A prophet in a closet is nothing but a contradiction. And yet, God tells him to go hide. So it was the word of the Lord to him, wasn't it? See, Elijah has this quality called stubbornness too. He's stubborn to just obey God. Several times you'll read throughout Elijah's story, his life, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, followed by, and Elijah did. And Elijah went and did. And Elijah obeyed. I have to say, I'm looking at this from a, a pastor standpoint or, you know, just what an advantage this would be for him to just stay there and, and start his public ministry with that very first prophecy. But God said, go hide yourself. Then, three years go by, and at this point, this king, the king of Israel named Ahab, whose wife happened to be Jezebel, it's not a good couple. Ahab is furious with Elijah that this has happened. And so he's out to kill him for this. He's blaming the prophet of God for this. And so he's on a manhunt to take him down. And look at First Kings chapter 18. Look what happens here. All right? And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. Go present yourself to Ahab. See, God, let me help you out here. This is actually the time to hide. Before, it didn't make any sense. Now it makes perfect sense. They're on a manhunt, and you're telling me to go face-to-face -face with the guy who is after me. God tells him to go hide, and he does. God tells him to go show himself to the king, and he does. Because he's stubborn to obey him. In each case... It's opposite of what would be easy. The stubborn people aren't concerned about what's easy. Today, let me encourage you, be stubborn despite overwhelming odds. Because the truth is, the Bible says that God is for you. Be stubborn despite overwhelming fatigue.
Because the scripture says, don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you'll faint not. And be stubborn despite your humble assignment. Believe that where you are is right exactly where you need to be. And God can use you mightily in that humble assignment. It's a humble assignment to change nurseries. Change nurseries, change diapers in a nursery at church. It's a humble assignment to serve over here at this house with a room full of toddlers. And yet, we have people here that are stubborn enough to do it so that you can be in here today to hear the word of God and not have to be concerned about those things. Isn't that a blessing? Can I encourage you today? Thank the nursery volunteer today. Thank the kids' church volunteers today. Thank them for their service. Remember, remember that they're doing it for you so that you can sit in here with a heart open wide to receive God's word. Amen? Amen. I'm grateful to God for them. Jesus Christ was in a garden place called Gethsemane, and it means the olive press. The scripture teaches us that he said to his disciples, this is right before he was arrested, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. That is what he was telling them, I'm dying. The resurrection and the life was losing his life. And it was the first time, I mean, how do you prepare yourself for that moment if all you've ever known is life? He, he, in one place he said, I am the life. But here, he's experiencing death as the sins of all mankind are being transferred over onto this perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And it begins to break his body, physically break his body, literally break his body down. The the scripture says that he sweat great drops of blood. My brother talked with a medical doctor about that, and the medical doctor said men don't survive that. If a man sweats blood, he's only hours away from dying. And Jesus, Jesus was dying there. And so he fell to his knees and said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus, Jesus is not wavering here. He's not wavering in his his mission here. He's not having trouble with finishing what he came to do. Jesus is dying there, and he's simply trying to survive that garden event. He's stubborn to finish his mission. Over and over again, the Bible says, talks about he set his face on Jerusalem, how he talked about the Son of Man being delivered over into the hands of sinners, how he would be crucified, how he would be buried, and how he would rise again from the dead three days later. This is not the place where he starts giving up. This is the place where he's trying to be strong enough to get there. Let this cup pass from Father, if it's your will that it all ends right here, let your will be done. But our Savior, my Jesus, was stubborn in his mission to accomplish what he came to do. And the scripture says that God answered his prayer. Angels came and strengthened him, and he went on. And then as he's hanging on that cross, in his dying breaths, he says a few things from there. The scripture records seven different statements, and I'm not going to go through all those things, but one of the things he said was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus had never, ever known separation from the Father. They were forever Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here, for the first time, God has completely and totally punished his son for our sins. See, what's the, the, the amazing thing about Christianity is that separates it from all other religions is Jesus Christ gets blamed for what you did. He takes the full punishment for what you and I did. Grace is what separates Christianity from it. It's not just one of many religions. It's ab- absolutely opposite of all other religions. All other religions are on a path on, by doing things and achieving certain things to to get a good end. But the Bible is nothing like that. It is, it's, these, it's, it's God just giving you grace and saying, will you believe that? Will you receive that? I'm good. I'm, I'm that good. You're not that good. I'm that good that I'm going to allow you to be with me. And we, by faith, say, I believe what Jesus did for me. He did all that was necessary for me to have a right relationship with God. I can't earn it. I can't be good enough. I can't put things together well enough to even have any semblance of anything presentable to God. I have to trust that what Jesus did was all I needed. Because he was forsaken. I don't have to be forsaken by God. That's why he was forsaken. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus did not mince words. He wasn't throwing out... He was throwing out euphemisms here. God had forsaken his son. He had forsaken him. He was completely alone there between heaven and earth. And then the very last statement, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit with no connection to God. Totally and utterly being forsaken by God, Jesus is stubborn. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He doesn't feel God. All he knows is the darkness and the deepness of sin and eternal damnation. As he's on the precipice of falling headlong into the punishment of it, yet he says by faith, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he accomplished what he came to do when he said, it is finished. And the scripture says it didn't stop there. They buried him in a tomb, but three days later, he came back to life. And he ascended into heaven. He's seated at the Father's right hand. And that man, Jesus Christ, who is a man and who is God, is there on your behalf today. So that you can be stubborn about who you are. So that you can believe when there's no hope, there's no reason, there's no condition set up for you to believe or to have hope. But so that you can say, I believe God. I know God's on my side. This is not, I'm not going to stop. I'm tired, but I am going to keep fighting the good fight of faith because I know that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And I'm going to find my place. Even if it's a small What seems to be a small job, I will be all I can be where I am. Amen. Amen. Can we bow our heads for just a moment? Father, I want to say thank you to you so much for encouraging us today through the lives of these men, God. And that this people will be a people who are 
stubborn despite overwhelming odds, despite overwhelming fatigue, and despite a humble position. The scripture says that the people who know their God are strong and do exploits. That is, they do great things. Hallelujah. Father, you've gathered this people here in this city for your cause. That's why we are named one cause, because we believe in the one cause of Christ Jesus. That your message for us delivers us, saves us, gives us new life. Ladies and gentlemen, today, I want to encourage you today, if you do not know God, know him today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for your sins. Believe that he was buried. Believe that he rose again three days later. Believe that he is your only way to God. And through him, you'll find life abundantly and life everlasting. Because the truth is, this life that you're living right now is here today and gone tomorrow. It's that kind of existence. But eternity waits. Eternity waits. And your eternity is determined by what you believe. And if you accept what God has done for you, totally based on the merits of Jesus Christ and none of yours, that you completely rely on him for your total salvation and total deliverance from sin, then that's exactly what it gives you. That's exactly what it gives you. And if you're here today and you say, Pastor Eric, that's me. I need to make a decision today. I'm not saved. I'm not part of the family of God. I don't know that if I'm going to heaven, but I want to know that. I believe this, what you've told me today. I believe Jesus died for me. And I want to surrender my heart to him right here and right now. Just raise your hand where you are. I want to pray for you. Just raise your hand where you are. Say, that's me, Pastor Eric. I want to be saved. I want to know when this life is over, that I am secure in him forever. Anybody here? Father, I thank you right now for these that have raised their hand. I thank you for your grace upon them. Thank you, Lord, for your free gift of salvation that you simply give it to us and you tell us all you have to do is believe and you will receive everlasting life. Let's pray this together, Lord. I do confess Jesus is Lord of my life. I believe that by him all my sins have been washed away. I believe Jesus died for my sins. He was buried, and I believe he rose again from the dead. And I believe that my home now, my eternal home, is heaven. And God is my Father. Jesus, I surrender to you. Take over my life. I am yours. And I commit the rest of my days to you. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let's stand together. Pastor Brandon. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We want to invite you to join us in service Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. 
and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Go to onecausechurch.com for location and events. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at One Cause Church. If you would like to partner with our ministry, you can now donate securely online. Just click on the link located on the front page of our website at onecausechurch.com.